0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore why kindergarten enrollment dropped during the pandemic and why it's rebounding now. And we hear from the woman who helped establish Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in the state, even before it became a national holiday. It gives people hope
1: because everything that he did for people has made America better. That's coming up.
0: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. In the first year of the pandemic, Colorado's kindergarten enrollment plummeted, leaving many to wonder where the students went and whether the shifts in early elementary enrollment might be a problem for years to come. A year later, many young students are back in public schools, with statewide kindergarten enrollment trending back up. To get a better sense of where the state is with kindergarten enrollment, we're speaking with Ann Shimke, a senior reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado, who's been covering early elementary enrollment after many months of pandemic-induced uncertainty. Ann, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a picture of what enrollment levels are like now? It sounds like we've still got a little bit of ground to make up to get back to where things were before the pandemic began.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So last year, kindergarten enrollment plummeted about 9% statewide. Um, There's been a rebound this year, a significant one, but it's still below pre-pandemic levels. Um, What we've seen in first grade, there was a, a smaller decline in first graders last year, but that decline has actually continued um, part of the reason for that is because I think a lot of families um, held their kids out of kindergarten last year and are sending them this year, even though they are um, age eligible for first grade.
0: Okay. Well, and then of course the question is, where did they go? In your recent reporting, I know you talked with several families about their experiences navigating early elementary schooling during this time. What did you? What insight did you gain from their perspective?
2: Yeah, let let me start with zooming out just really quick. So, some um, children did an extra year of preschool. They just didn't enroll in the K twelve. Um, you know, public school system. Um, There were also an increased number of homeschoolers at all elementary grade levels. It more than tripled the number at kindergarten. Um, We also saw charter schools um, have increased enrollment. Um, And then finally, there were families that uh, just simply kept their children home with them instead of sending them to public school. One grandmother I talked to um, who has her grandson and and his mother live with her, she doesn't have internet access. So last year, when a lot of schools started remote learning, um, she didn't know where to start. Um, She didn't know how to get online, so she just skipped it. This year, her grandson um, started out in kindergarten, but after about a week, switched into first grade. And part of the reason for that is he was very tall and a little more mature socially. And so they thought, well, he'll learn, he'll pick it up. Unfortunately, the problem he's having is having missed kindergarten completely. He's really struggling now in first grade. Mm.
0: Yeah, those are tough decisions. And I think Given the nature of the global pandemic that we have been going through, a lot of people just, this is so new for people.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And I think a lot of parents just had to, you know, pull the trigger on kindergarten or first grade or some other arrangement. And you don't always know how it's going to go until you're in the middle of it.
0: Right. Well, Enrollment levels were trending down earlier in the pandemic. There were some outliers um, that you noted. Some schools did actually see growth in enrollment over the same period uh, during the pandemic. What factors set these schools apart?
2: Well, let me give you an example. One district um, in suburban Denver is the Mapleton District. It's a pretty small district uh, just north of Denver. And they continued growing in both kindergarten and first grade through the pandemic um, and they had um, more increases this year and basically they're a district that attracts a lot of of out-of-district students. That's um, a little bit their brand and We just saw that continuing. Um, There's other districts like 27J that's based in Brighton. Um, I think they did have at least some slight declines in one grade or the other in those early elementary grades uh, last year, but not much. And they're just a rapidly growing district. A lot of new housing is going up in that area. And then, like I mentioned before, we saw a lot of charter schools, continue to grow. Um, I talked to the executive director of the charter school Institute, which authorizes um, dozens of charter schools around the state. And she said one benefit charter schools had is just being smaller communities and being able to listen to families um, and be kind of a little more responsive to needs than say a bigger system where you have you know, 20 or 30 or 50 schools um, and a lot of different needs and wants. So I think charter schools just have the ability to be more nimble in some instances.
0: Now, during the pandemic, uh, there was growth in alternative schooling arrangements, things like homeschooling or just spending time at home with other family members. You cite data from the State Department of Education that shows the number of homeschooled students doubled in elementary grades and was even higher for kindergarten. Explain a little bit about those numbers and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, exactly like you said, homeschooling increased in every elementary grade. Um, It more than tripled in kindergarten. It more than doubled in first grade grade. Those numbers have gone back down this year, but not to pre-pandemic levels. So we're still seeing more early elementary families um, choosing homeschooling. Um, It's unclear, you know, whether those gains from two years ago will stick into kind of next year and future years. But, um, you know, we'll see. Right.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ann Shimke, senior reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. Without officially homeschooling, some parents during the pandemic chose to just hold off on sending their kids to kindergarten. uh, Some people call this practice redshirting. Why do some parents make that choice?
2: I think there's a lot of reasons. A lot of families uh, were just nervous about remote schooling. They didn't think it was an effective way for their five-year-olds to learn. I think um, there were also families who... Um, you know, maybe have the option of hybrid learning and eventually in person and and felt concerned about the risk of COVID last year. So they just decided to put the whole thing off until things felt safer. Um, so I would say those are kind of two of the, and then of course, internet access and computer access and device access is an issue we've seen since, you know, the spring of 2020. And
0: and we've been talking about the pandemic as a primary driving factor behind dropping enrollment and the rise in homeschooling. Um, are there
2: other reasons, though, for this? Yes. So it's important to consider the fact that for years now, Colorado has had a declining birth rate. So we were already seeing declining enrollment in some districts. It really depends on the area, though, because even despite the declining birth rate, we still have some communities Like I mentioned before, Brighton, for example, Weld County is another example, where there's a lot of residential growth and there is um, actually school enrollment increases. So it's, it's not a consistent trend in every community. Right.
0: Well, given the kindergarten numbers trending so much higher, are schools ready? I mean, can they handle the influx of new young learners?
2: Um, Yes, I would say yes. The kindergarten teachers that I've talked to recently, one thing they've all noted is they always have a wide range of skills and kind of um, previous experience levels among their kindergartners. So they are no strangers to having um, a a wide span of kids. Um, One teacher this year said the biggest difference this year with her class versus previous years is they had a little bit weaker oral language skills. And she said, it wasn't just vocabulary, it was the ability to hold a back and forth conversation with classmates. So normally when a child asks a question, another child would answer. She said at the beginning of the year, that wasn't happening. Kids would just ignore each other. Um, It was almost like they had to relearn the art of a group conversation. I think next year it's going to be really interesting to see if this little kind of bubble we have this year of of extra kindergartners, if that bubble is going to kind of continue up through the grades and we'll see the first grade declines reverse a little bit and rebound the way kindergarten did this year.
0: Anne Shimke is a senior reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You will find a link to her reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Anne, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We often only hear about drought in the summertime. But the winter is a critical window for water in the West. Snow falling high in the Rocky Mountains builds up through the colder months, acting like a natural reservoir for the 40 million people who rely on the Colorado River. As KUNC's Alex Hager reports, the way we understand snow totals is changing.
3: Tony Wagner is at home on the ski slopes. That's where I met him.
2: It's a beautiful day
1: in Aspen, Colorado. We're on the top of Aspen Mountain, 11,212 feet.
3: He's been skiing this mountain for more than 70 years.
1: Blue sky, bluebird day, the kind everybody talks about. Temperatures probably in the low teens. The snow is hard and fast. I mean, it's perfect.
3: This mountain and this town depend on snow to keep the ski resort running. Wagner keeps an eye on snow up here and on the ranch he owns down in the valley. He remembers one dry year in the 70s when the hayfields were snowless by March.
1: I hate to say, but many Marches after that, the hayfields have been bare. So anecdotally, you could say, yeah, there's probably a little less snow, or maybe it's warmer, right? You know, I don't know, not being a scientist, but it's, it's noticeable.
3: The amount of snow falling on Wagner's hayfields and at high elevations all throughout the Rockies, it's been gradually going down over the decades. The snow melt that recharges the Colorado River and supplies cities and farms across a huge expanse of the Western U.S., it's getting less reliable.
4: If you look at long-term climate trends, you see a general warming in climate, which um, doesn't necessarily change the amount of precipitation in headwaters areas, but changes how it falls.
3: Heather Lewin is the science and policy director at the Roaring Fork Conservancy, a river education group just downstream of Aspen.
4: So we're seeing more precipitation as rain rather than as snow. So that means instead of having a savings account, uh, we have a spending account that hits the the river and moves quickly versus a savings account that kind of gives us a long-term security.
3: And this year, something changed in the way we look at snow data. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, shifted how it calculates averages for all of its data. Temperature, precipitation, and of course, snowpack. Every 10 years, NOAA moves the three-decade window that it uses for averages. So if you see that current snowpack data is 120% of average,
4: The context right now is that, well, uh, that 120% of average might give us an inflated sense of confidence as to how much water we're going to see this summer and how much snow we're really looking at up high right now.
3: The current window goes back to 1991, but if we were using longer-term historical comparison, those averages, which are shared widely in newspaper stories and reports for skiers and river users, they might give people a better understanding of how the climate is reshaping our winters. Just ask the folks who measure the snow, like Stephen Jowan with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Earlier on, when I first started 15 years ago, you know we'd actually measure some snow. In, in the last, uh, you know, in the April-May survey, and a lot of times now we just walk in and there's no snow. Getting good data requires a little bit of tracking. First, it's a drive about two hours from that mountain in Aspen, way out of cell range. Then you strap on the backcountry skis, and deep in the woods, Jowen and a technician trek along a line of nine points. At each stop, he announces the number of the measurement site and plunges a long aluminum tube into the snow. Seven. Seven. Now, the tube is holding a core of the fluffy stuff. It's measured and weighed, and the findings are jotted down in a little notebook. 24.5. 24.5. If it sounds old school, that's because it is. There are higher tech stations that have been running since the 70s and 80s, but surveys exactly like this one paint a picture of snow records going back almost a century. Again, Heather Lewin.
4: You need to look at the context that you're, that you're reading or listening to it in, um, because often there, there's a bigger picture. Um, the data all tells a story, and it just depends on um, the context that we're reading it in.
3: That bigger picture is one of gradual, long-term change for the Colorado River's main source of water. And a better understanding of how the snow is changing means a better understanding of the future for a river that's a lifeline for tens of millions of people. In Aspen, Colorado, I'm Alex Hager, KUNC.
0: This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Denver is preparing to honor the service and legacy of the city's first black mayor, Wellington Webb, and his wife of more than 50 years, Wilma. Wellington Webb served as mayor from 1991 to 2003. Axios Denver has reported that a bronze sculpture of Webb will be unveiled in the atrium of his namesake municipal building next month. Wilma Webb is also being honored. She was not only the First Lady of Denver during her husband's term as mayor, she also served six terms in Colorado's House of Representatives from 1980 to 1993. And among her accomplishments was getting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day officially recognized in Colorado. Last month, the Denver Public Library Commission voted to name the archives room in the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library after her. The commission will hold a special event to announce the honor this Saturday. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel spoke with Wilma Webb in 2020 about her time in Colorado politics and why it's important to stay
1: focused on the work of Dr. King.
5: Why did you feel it was important to have a day set aside to celebrate Dr. King?
1: As most people know by now, Dr. King was one of the greatest Americans that we have ever had, that has ever lived. And he was one of the most uh, unanimously loving and loved humanitarians across the world. And so what he was doing was all good for making America better. He actually changed the direction of our country, which was going in a poor direction, a bad direction, where we had segregation, uh, where we had uh, people that were unemployed and underemployed who couldn't get jobs because of discrimination. And he lived his life and he gave his life to make those corrections as best as he could. And I was particularly moved by the 1964 and the 1965 Civil Rights Act so one was for accommodations and for doing away with segregation and the other was for the right for everyone to have a right to vote and so that was at the highlight of what he was doing but further than that when I was a young girl Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Denver. He was the guest speaker at our church, New Hope Baptist Church for me at that time. And then Mrs. Coretta Scott King also came here and her first official speech to an audience. Her first public speech was done here in Denver, Colorado at uh, New Hope Baptist Church. And I was the organist and she was the guest speaker, and we were friends ever since then. And so my relationship with the King family goes really far back. And so I felt that it was my duty and my responsibility to try to do whatever I could in terms of their values, in terms of their principles, in terms of their humanitarian efforts. And so I thought the least that I could do was to have him recognized not only for what he did but for all of the contributions of particularly African American people at that time but as you know he was a person who was for making everybody better.
5: Talk a little bit about what it took to get the bill passed.
1: The efforts began in 1968 when dr king was assassinated on april the fourth 1968 and there were all kinds of tributes and resolutions giving him respect and honor but there were very few efforts to make his birthday an official holiday at the time state representative wellington webb was the first one to carry legislation in Colorado and he attempted three times and on the third time he did get it out of the House of Representatives but it died in the Senate. And when I came in 1980, I carried bills in 1981, 82, 83 and 84. And each time it was really quite an ordeal in terms of educating the elected officials in terms of the negative thoughts about Dr. King, such as his being accused of being a communist, which he was not, in terms of people who were elected and promising to vote for it, and they did not vote for it, in terms of after it was adopted. At the time before it was adopted, I was a member of the Joint Budget Committee, and the speaker at that time was not a supporter, he was an opponent. Of Dr. King's and he would not reappoint me to that committee. And I had to go to court to be able to take my seat on the Joint Budget Committee. And so those were some of the things that happened. But I have to write a book to share everything. But the good thing is, is that we have this holiday.
5: For our listeners, they may be hearing noises of geese and car sounds, and you and I are actually not in the studio. We're in City Park in Denver, and we are in front of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and your name is on there, so talk a little bit about this memorial.
1: We're very proud of this Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, Memorial monument because of what it means, first of all, and then second of all, for whose shoulders he stood on, and for his shoulders and their shoulders and the predecessors' shoulders that we all stand on today. And if you'll notice the tablets surrounding this sculpture, they give the history of African Americans from the beginning of slavery on up until the assassination of Dr. King. And they also have his remarkable untouched quotations that he used throughout his life to improve humankind he was a humanitarian and those are irrefutably wise and and they still stand today on martin Luther king
5: jr day there is a marade here in denver what is the marade in
1: 1985 when we were meeting as the commission for the holiday Since we had the holiday, we said, what are we going to do with it? And so we were meeting to establish and create activities and also the legacy of Dr. King that would be reflective of him. And so uh, we created our six days of activities to include every community in Colorado. And we were talking about what should we do on Martin Luther King Day. And so I said, well, we have to have a march, we have to have a march. And then we took it a step further because march implies that you have a purpose, that there is a remedy and the remedy is being denied and it's not being acknowledged even though it's right. And so we said, well, we have to celebrate the ce- the celebration of the abolishment of slavery, all of the efforts of the civil rights movement, the march from Selma to Montgomery, all of the people who have fought and who have worked on uh, making it possible for all people to be able to vote. So we have to celebrate that those things have happened. So that's when I came up with the term Maraid, and it got adopted. It's everywhere now, the Martin Maraid. And it is to always address the issues that need to be corrected and made right, and always to celebrate where we've come from as a nation.
5: You've created quite a legacy from your Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Bill, What do you think when you see all that
1: i'm happy for what has happened and glad and grateful for what has happened i still think just like dr king said he said i may not get there with you but we as a people will get to the promised land and i feel like we're still not there yet we're not there yet the dream hasn't been realized we're not there yet. And I keep working for us to be there. And I think other people do. And I think they look to this for inspiration because Dr. King was, he was an humble person. He, he wasn't a wealthy person. He wasn't a highly elected official like a U.S. senator or a president or anything. He was one of the people. And so it gives people hope because everything that he did for people has made America better. He changed the direction of America, he did.
0: Wilma Webb is a former Colorado State representative responsible for establishing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a holiday here in Colorado before it was celebrated nationally. She spoke with KUNC's Stephanie Daniel in 2020. And that's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll get some insight into what it's like being a journalist covering the world these days from former international reporter and Weekend Edition host Lulu Garcia Navarro. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.